your Bibles to the book of Joel, the book of Joel. Last week, we started looking at the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. And as I mentioned to you, if there is any place in Scripture where I struggle to know or to distinguish these books from one another, it is here in the minor prophets. And they are not minor in the sense that they have a minor message or that they were minor men. They're minor in the sense that their books are smaller than what we would call the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And so these men had a message for their time and they have a word for us in the time in which we live too. And so my aim is, is to take each one of these and uh, bring out or highlight a particular theme or the largest theme inside of these books so that you and I can understand the minor prophets better together. And so the book of Joel is where we are today. Let's pray that the Lord would give us insight this morning into his word and grow us in love for him. We ask this morning, Lord, that you will bless us with eyes to see what you want us to see in the book of Joel. He lived a long time ago in a world that is much different than our own. But at the same time, Lord, there were hearts in Joel's day that were not much different than ours at all. There was a people who were wandering from you. And your desire, your heart out of mercy and kindness was to call those people back to yourself. And so Lord, would you please speak to us today to see what the prophet has to say that speaks to our time. Bless us, Lord, with ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It was about this time four years ago that we began to get the news that a new strange disease was starting to spread over in China. And before we knew it, that disease had gone to Europe and then to Washington State, if I remember correctly, and then to New York City, and then it had spread everywhere. And for the next 18 to 24 months, you almost couldn't do anything without having to think first about COVID-19. A lot of bad took place during that time beyond the disease itself. Lockdowns, government overreach, forced vaccinations, no school. It was a mess. And I have to imagine that everybody here just wanted it all to end so that life could go back to normal, whatever normal was or whatever normal now is. But I wonder, how many Christians stopped to think during that time that God had anything to do with what was going on? When we read our Bibles, will readily confess that God is in control of everything. Until we get to a disaster of some sort and then 
we get uncomfortable thinking that he has anything to do with that at all. We prefer to have a God who does what we expect him to do. We prefer to have a God who is on a leash of some sort, who can be easily explained. But our God is none of that. And because he is in control, God is in everything. And so yes, our God was in COVID-19 and not as a spectator. He wasn't just an onlooker watching what was going on in the world. Maybe a little bit surprised at what had happened. No, not at all. The God who works all things according to his will, willed that disease. He brought it through the purposes of evil men, for his own purposes. And many of those purposes that God had for that period of time will never be known by us. But one of them is clearly outlined in the small book that we call Joel. Joel was a prophet during a time which nobody knows. Nobody knows when the man lived. Nobody can agree on that, but it's because unlike many other books, there are no time stamps in Joel. There's not anything like we see in the book of Isaiah in the year when King Uzziah died. Nothing like that in Joel. But in a way, it doesn't really matter. The content that Joel gives to us is helpful in any time. And here is what we learn from this man. That world history is moving toward a day when God will dramatically intervene, step in, and he will judge the nations of the earth. So everything right now is moving toward that time. It cannot be stopped. That day will come. And periodically, events come about in this world that we live in that disturb the comfortable routine of the earth's people. Things like wars, natural disasters. We call them natural because they happen in the natural world. Though every one of them is controlled by a supernatural God. There are diseases that take place, famines, droughts. And these are like tremors before an earthquake, birth pains before the child, warnings of what is to come. All of these serve as a wake-up call for the callous and for the comfortable. And so COVID-19 was not just an obstacle that human ingenuity and science needed to conquer. It was a harbinger of a day of judgment that is still yet to come. I want you to think for a moment about that time. I can remember some strange things that took place, you know, the shortages, the things that we were scrambling for, the panic, the confusion, the outrage, the chaos that took place at the onset of that. Do you remember that? It wasn't that long ago. And all of that from a disease with the mortality rate as low as it was. And sadly, 
That was the response in many churches, chaos, confusion, frustration, outrage, fear. All of that was happening inside of churches from people who know the scriptures. And what we experienced at that time was just a small foretaste, an appetizer of what is actually coming. And so can you imagine what the day of the Lord will be like when the Lord returns to the earth with all that comes with him? Can you imagine what it'll be like to live in that day with the chaos, the confusion, the fear that will happen on the earth? If that's the response that we had for a disease, what will the day of the Lord be like? And why do I say all of this to start? Because Joel tells us of a disaster in his own day, in Israel. And it was not a disease, but it was something that threatened life and comfort all the same. And to the onlooker who had no eyes to see history from a God-centered perspective, that's what we are to have. But everything that takes place happens from a God-centered worldview. He's in the middle of everything, not on the outskirts. So many people think of God as out, out here on the edge of everything. But our God is in the midst of everything that is taking place. And so from the eyes of an onlooker with a person who has no God-centered perspective, that event in Joel's day might have been just excused or explained as a natural thing that needed to be endured or overcome, like so many in our time did during COVID. But Joel tells us here that it all comes about from the hand of the Lord. And the disease, or the disaster, I'm sorry, in Joel's day came about through locusts, through locusts. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 4. Look at what he says here. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Locusts were coming. They plagued his day like a cloud, a disaster coming from afar, and it swooped in and ate up everything that was green on the ground. Interestingly enough, those who have written on locust plagues have said that Joel gives a perfect description of that insect's development here. That these aren't four different types of locusts. They're actually four different stages of the locust's growth, its development. A square meter where locusts have laid their eggs will contain up to 75,000 bugs. Think about that. In a plot like this, 75,000 bugs have been laid inside of there. And you multiply that over an entire territory that they're moving in, and you would have billions and billions of these pests, enough to darken the sky and strip bare everything that's on the ground. And think about the impact that that would have on an agricultural society where they are dependent on that crop that is out there in the field. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have freezers. They're not canning things. They need what is out there on the ground for life to be sustained. Something like this actually happened in Israel about 100 years ago in 1915. 
Listen to how a writer, his name was John Whiting from the National Geographic described the devastation that came upon the earth. He said, once entering a vineyard, the sprawling vines would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which after exposure to the sun were bleached snow white. Then seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off small limbs, perhaps to get at the pith within. Whiting describes how the locusts of the last stage completed the destruction begun by the earlier form. He says, they attacked the olive trees whose tough bitter leaves had been passed over by the creeping locusts. They stripped every leaf, berry, and even the tender bark. They ate away layer after layer of the cactus plants, giving the leaves the effect of having been jackplaned. Even on the scarce and prized palms, they had no pity gnawing off the tenderer ends of the sword like branches and diving deep into the heart, they tunneled after the juicy pith. We marvel how this ancient writer, Joel, could have given so graphic and true a description of a devastation caused by locusts in so condensed a form. This is what Joel is saying came upon the land in his own day. And he is not quick to excuse this as a novelty or something that simply needs to be moved on from as quickly as possible. And so after seeing the destruction of this pest and the pain that it caused to the people, the prophet understands that this is not mere coincidence. And brothers and sisters, you and I can learn from his wisdom this morning. Nothing that takes place in this world is random or coincidence. It all has a purpose in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Joel understands this point that God intervenes in history in very stark ways to warn of a greater judgment that is to come. And what people of all peoples should be keen on this? The pagan world is clueless. They don't think anything about God. They don't think about his world. They don't think about where they're living, accountability, nothing like that. They just go on and on and on with no thoughts toward him at all. It's the godly that have to speak up with a prophetic voice. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. God speaks to his people during disaster. Actually, verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? It says that all this comes from the hand of the Almighty. And before this, he calls on various people to lament and wail. He even says to the drunkard, cry drunkard because all of your fruit is dried up. There's nothing left to drink in the land. He tells the priest to wail and mourn because grain offerings are not going to be brought to the house of the Lord anymore. But when it comes time to speak to a people to do something, he calls on his own people. He calls on them to respond, to see what is happening in the land and understand that his hand is in it, that God is in it for a purpose. He has a purpose in everything that is taking place. 
And so God calls on the church, in a sense, in Joel's day to have eyes to see. He wants them to see that this is not just a random turn of events, that this has come about by the judgment of God. And that judgment through these locusts in his day, it will seem little in comparison to the judgment that is still yet to come. And he wants his people to wake up. To look around with spiritual eyes to see things as they really are, not just as the godless world does. It is so easy for us to settle into routines where we only think about the small picture, about my job, my classes, my relationships, my marriage and my children. And we do need to think about all of these things, do we not? They are the small nuts and bolts of daily life. But we also need to think beyond those things to the larger picture, to the bigger story that is happening that we are a part of that God has made this world, it all belongs to him, everything. He placed the earth on its axis. He began it to spin around the star that we call the sun. It's all his. It's all moving to a particular place. And he created every being here on earth to delight in his glory, made in his image to represent him, to rule and have dominion, to be fruitful and to multiply, to live forever. We all belong to him. He made you and he made me for a reason. For a particular day and time, we were all made to live in the 21st century, right here, right now for something. He wants us to live a life of worship and fruitfulness in the 21st century. I often kind of romanticize, I think, about a time past. And maybe you do that too. I think, if I had just lived in that time, then everything would have been okay. I would have enjoyed then. And maybe you've got one of those time frames in your mind too. Maybe you want to go back to the you know, early American revolution revolutionary times or the Civil War time frame or just after World War II when everything started to boom and everything seemed much more pure and good. And maybe things were better back then, but God did not make you to live in that time. He made me and you live in this time. That's what we've been made for, to bring, to bring glory to him now in America right now in the 21st century. But will we not also admit that during this time that hearts and minds are so far from God? They just are. Even in the church, we can get caught up in living like those people around us. And from time to time, a wake-up call is needed to get us back on track. And my hope is that even for just a moment as we're looking at this little book called Joel with only three chapters, that you'll stop in your thoughts and comprehend that time that we now live in, almost as if it will just always go on like this forever, that it's time is marching toward a cliff when the great and awesome, or as the old people of God used to say, the great and terrible day of the Lord will come. 
And in that moment, I can guarantee you this, that nothing else will matter to anybody who lives on the earth. They'll think nothing of anything else. And so again, that time frame that we lived in four years ago, nobody could think about anything but that, even though other things were still going on. On this day, when the Lord Jesus shows up, nobody will think about anything else. And in one way or another, whether we're here or we've gone on to the grave, does not matter. Everybody will be a witness on that day. And locusts and diseases and hurricanes and blizzards and catastrophe and war, all of that will tell us in our day right now, as those things happen, that something greater is just around the bend. It's not clear in chapter two here if God is describing the locusts or if he's describing a foreign army or his mighty angels, when he says the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And so his army could be any one of those things, and I'm not sure that it matters all that much because what he's talking about here is judgment. It's the judgment of God. And your Lord this morning does not want you to drift through this life only seeking comfort and clothes and food and nice things until you die. He wants more for you than that. The pagans want all of those things too. We are supposed to be different. Israel in Joel's day was to be different than all the nations that were around them. That is the church of the living God here in America today. What sets us apart? It should be holiness of life because we have been joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should look different. We should think differently. We should speak differently. On the radio this week, I, I told Dan this earlier this week, I listen to that Bowerly from time to time on the way home, and I'm just struck at times by the silly things that he talks about. He said, I don't know a single person who doesn't go around using these four-letter words, and you can imagine which ones he's talking about. He said, I know doctors, I know lawyers, I know people of every stripe out there. They all speak this way. And I thought to myself, well, the church of the living God should not speak this way. These things should not be common. And it actually says something about the time that we live in when everybody walks around talking like that. Because they don't love holiness. But the church of Jesus Christ loves holiness. And we should be different. When you go into your workplace, wherever you are, tomorrow, man, somebody should think, you know what, I don't know what to think about that guy. He's so much different. Does he, does he think he's better than us? What, what makes him different than us? And hopefully there's an opportunity at some point for you to say, it is Jesus Christ who makes me different. It's not of me, it's not of anything that I've done, it's what he has done. He bought me with his blood and he has set me apart for holiness. And I am an imperfect man 
but I know that the Lord Jesus lives and he gave his life for me to change me from who I used to be to who I am now. That's what makes me different. And so in Israel's day, they had been claimed in covenant by the love of God, and yet they had drifted back into this former way of living. And we need to understand and acknowledge this morning that that can happen to the church of Jesus Christ in our day. And what God calls us to as he sends things like this into the world is repentance. It is wake up. He wants his church to wake up. He sends wake-up calls. And these terrible events are acts of mercy. They're acts of kindness in the grand scheme of things. Now, they don't look like it on their face. I don't think anybody four years ago celebrated when a disease landed in our world, did we? It was awful in many ways. But from a God-centered perspective, we should have looked at that and understood God is in the midst of this. What is he doing? What's he doing? He wants us to be reminded that he is in control and there is a day of judgment yet to come and all sinners are called to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because he entered into this world to save us from the wrath and the judgment that was to come. And that disease was just a small little picture of what's coming down the pike. And yes, the godless, they have their eyes, they have their ears closed. But it should not be so with the people of God. So notice that the accountability belongs to those who know him, that God is jealous for his own people's hearts. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, yet even now, he means even at this particular point when things look like they are far beyond saving, far beyond hope, yet even now, he says, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, meaning you've left him. You've wandered from him. If you've got to return to something, it means you've left that thing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Repentance is a major theme in the minor prophets. And it should be a major theme in any believer's life. And I, I listen guys, I, as I was even preparing for this, like I'm wondering, how are the people at CAS going to respond to this? And I hope that you'll respond exactly the way that God's word wants you to. But I have to understand, like this is not a popular message. This is not one of those things that you're gonna probably hear on family life radio or something like that. I, I don't know repentance. But man, it is a major theme in the scriptures. Why? Because sin is so awful in the eyes of God. And the reason why it is not a major theme in many people's lives is because sin is not seen as awful. It is not comprehended in light of who a holy God is. 
So we like to hear all the affirming things, things that make us feel good about ourselves, but the gospel does not do that. It does not make you feel good about yourself, at least not initially. It brings you to a place where you loathe your sin and you hate that it is still present inside of you. Like Paul would say, oh, this body of death. How often do you say something like that? How often do you look inside of your heart and, and, and lament what you see there? So repentance is a major theme in Scripture because it's a major theme in the heart of God. It's not a show. It's not a formality. So look here what he says. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. So there's a kind of repentance that is for show where a man could take off his cloak and, you know, wash it out like, oh, I hate sin, but it's not coming from his heart. God is saying, I don't want your garments rent. Don't tear your stuff and act like it. Don't wear sackcloth as if you are mourning over your sin when your heart does not match it. That's what he's saying here. Rend your heart because you hate sin. Don't just go through the motions. So I think a major question for us this morning as God's people is repentance a theme in your life? Is it a theme? When is the last time that you have asked the Lord forgiveness for a specific sin? That you had a heart that was torn upset and mourning over something that you thought, said, did, attitude, when's the last time? And then you got on your face before the Lord and you prayed to him, begging for mercy and forgiveness that you knew that you had through Jesus Christ. When is the last time that that happened? And I'm not asking, are you aware that you're a sinner? in a general way, and just pray that God would forgive you. I think you'd all say that you do that. At least I hope so, at the very least. What I mean is that there is this corner inside of your heart where this thing lives, where this thought exists, where there is this desire that you would rather not admit that you have, this thing that you like to do, this place that you like to go, attitude toward other people. When is the last time that you examined that area and prayed to the Lord with a rent heart? And you knew that Jesus Christ had bought you grace and forgiveness at Calvary and you loved him for it. And in that moment, there was a great act of worship because you knew how lowly of a sinner that you are, you are, but you knew how great and awesome and forgiving your God is, and he has shown you that through the blood of his son. Just there in your closet, as Jesus would say, you just got on your knees and you prayed and nobody else saw you, nobody to see you lament publicly with your torn garments, you were just right there in the presence of God. 
When's the last time that that happened? Several years ago, I remember having a conversation with a woman in our church who, when I asked her something like this, she was not aware of any active sin in her life. And it sounded like the idea for such a thing had never actually even entered her mind. And I don't think that she's all that uncommon. This is what it means to drift, to be unaware, to live like the world with a name Christian stamped on the outside with very little evidence of it going on on the inside. And so brothers and sisters, we need wake up calls. So we might get COVID as a culture, but we also get little personal wake-up calls too. Things that unsettle us, personal disasters, health scares, locusts that eat things up. And in the moment, they are awful crises. But in the long run, they are gifts from God to shake us from spiritual stagnation and worse. The Lord is a good Father who disciplines those that he loves. And he wants us to understand that even though our sin is great, his mercy and his grace and his love are greater still. And so that's what he says here to the prophet, return to the Lord with all your heart, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding, overflowing, in steadfast love. That is your God's heart. And notice the interesting phrase that he says there in verse 14. He says, perhaps he may leave a blessing behind him. And in Joel's context, what that meant was is out there where the locusts had come in, had stripped those fields absolutely bare as the people walked back through that field and looked around, they found some green things that the locusts had not touched. God had left behind a blessing for them in the midst of tragedy. As I look back on those couple of years of COVID, there is still some frustration in me from what I saw, especially when it comes to how people in power exploited the fears of the public. But a couple years on, I can also see that the Lord left a blessing behind him. A lot of Christians did wake up during that time. They began to break free from cultural norms they probably would not have ever thought to do. I've seen how many parents began to educate their own children instead of depending on the godless government to disciple their kids. They started questioning the so-called experts. They changed jobs. They moved to better places. They started to be more self-sufficient. And I have seen a lot of this, and I've benefited from conversations from other like-minded people that stemmed from those seemingly lost years. God left behind a blessing. And in the wake of disaster, what seems to be lost forever, God does something that only he can. 
And so when you get woke, and I don't mean in the godless cultural way, but when God wakes you up, what do you do? You repent of sin. You return to the Lord. And God restores what was seemingly lost. And one of my favorite verses that I like to even think of as a parent, because I look back and I think about decisions that I've made, things that I've done, things that I've said, things that I didn't do more often than not, things that I wish that I had done. And now all these years later, I think, why did I not have wisdom back then? One of my favorite verses, verse 25 of chapter 2, Oh, I think it is. My eyes. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I'll give it back. Only God can do this. It looks like it's lost, forever gone. And God says, no, no, I'm able yeah, the hourglass looked like it had run out. There was no hope for you. Shredded every bit of it. He says, no, I can do this. I can restore to you all that time that you thought was gone forever. And the Lord did it in Israel's day. And he can do it in ours. He is still showing his patience. Because the great day of the Lord is not here yet. This is a time for repentance. And I have to imagine that there is somebody here today who walked into this room never thinking about your sin, never broken in heart, never considering that your Christianity might just be a facade, and you're not trying to be fake. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that you've never considered that you might be. There's no brokenness for sin in your life. There's no repentance. There's no genuine prayer, no love for God's word, no real obedience, no lifestyle that's any different from the pagan around you except that you come to church. That's it. That's the difference. But following Jesus is so much more than that. It will cost you your life. So let God's word this morning be your wake-up call. The people in Israel, when Joel first spoke this word, would have thought to themselves, I'm okay. I'm Abraham's seed. Everything is okay with me. And then Joel hits them with this, repent. That swarm of locusts is there for you. You are not okay. And so brothers and sisters, God is being kind to us this morning. If he says to you, you are not okay, wake up. As we close, I ask that you do some personal examination. Did you need a wake-up call when you walked in here this morning? Or maybe God has already sent a wake-up call into your life and you just did not have eyes to see it, I would ask that you take a few minutes this morning when we close to repent, to rend your heart, not just your garments. 
I think the prayer that David prayed would be suitable for us this morning as we enter into our, our time of prayer and response. Matt, if you would, could you please put that up there? We're gonna close in silence this morning and just reflect on our own lives and ask God to search us. David prayed this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a daring prayer. And would you dare to pray that this morning where you ask God to search your own heart and ask if there is any grievous way in you that you need to repent of and use God's word and what the prophet Joel says here to wake us up. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we enter into just a few minutes of prayerful response, I confess to you that this is not an easy message to preach, a message of repentance, but it is a necessary message if we are to see our hearts and to see the great need that we have for Jesus Christ and to rejoice in him. As a church, may each one of us look in our hearts as you illuminate the path in there and show us where sin exists. And may we be bold to approach the throne of grace and ask for it to crush the evil that still is inside of us that has been hiding from view as you bring it to light. Make us more holy. I pray, God, that as a church, as we go out into the world, even this afternoon or this week, wherever we are, that we will be a different people than those who are around us that draws them to see the beauty and awesomeness of our Savior, Jesus. He came to this world to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for people who were far from you. And there are so many who still are. And right now they are just out there lost and wandering and in the dark and they need a wake up call. And may we as a church, when things come into our society or into our lives, know that you have brought them through your sovereign hand. And we don't always know your perfect purposes in everything we do or everything that comes to us. We do know that everything that you do is working for our good to make us more holy. And so yes, on a large scale, we see terrible events like a disease that comes into our world as something in your hands that brings about good for your people. But even on a small scale, there are things happening in the lives of your folks this morning that they need to see is meant to draw them close to your side. And it is a beautiful thing when you do. So Lord, we ask that you will consecrate this time that we pray to you and do a mighty work in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.